Welcome to another episode of the Underdog Physician Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Joshua Engel. Dr. Engel is an internal medicine trained physician, a well-known researcher in the field of MRI imaging, medical advisory board member at VIC Tech, and is the founder and CMO of ExciteMD. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh, today. Thank you so much. Likewise. So let's get started. Tell us your underdog story. How did this all... Yeah, so in med school, there was this program called the Health Technology and Engineering Program, HTE for short. And I basically begged the director of that program to let me in. At the time, we were being paired up with engineers to to solve challenges in healthcare. And I was working actually on a nighttime seizure monitor, and that was kind of like my project. We ended up not commercializing the nighttime seizure monitor, but I learned a ton about both uh, wearable and non-contact sensor technology. During that time, I was, it was, it was amazing to see sensors that could measure a heartbeat from across the room, all the other vital signs that goes into health monitoring. And I remember being blown away. That was kind of my foray into uh, medical technology. Then from there, fast forward, did my intern year at Loyola McNeil. That was during COVID. I actually took a non-traditional path. After finishing my intern year, I ended up getting a research position as a postdoc. It was like a neuroradiology at Beth Israel, looking at the applications of a health metric called the oxygen extraction fraction, and using that as kind of like a proxy for detecting neurological diseases earlier on and like monitoring neurological diseases. And this is a metric that's measured with a radiological approach. So CT, MRI, that type of neuroimaging. So that kind of like further got me exposure into the medical technology space. I've always had an entrepreneurial bend, even before I was in medicine, way back before I went to med school, I I worked for doing business development for an angel investment firm. So I decided to leverage not just the the medical expertise I had, but also the, the medical technology expertise to opening a digital first medical clinic. I think it's the right time to start such a venture. We're seeing a lot of patients both demand more remote patient monitoring approaches. We're seeing the billing kind of catch up. And and we're seeing that this, it's in addition to being a viable medical practice business model, we're seeing this actually really expand healthcare access. One of the things that excites me about just the being able to leverage a lot of these remote patient monitoring tools is that people are busy. They're going throughout their day. They're busy with work. The traditional model is making a a doctor's appointment several weeks in advance, going, having to commute to a doctor's office, wait, take time off of work. That's revenue loss. That's time loss. We can't completely replace the doctor's office, but by starting from a digital first approach and really kind of saying like, okay, what can we do just via telehealth and remote patient monitoring, especially when tackling chronic health conditions, it's an area that I gravitated towards. So I have been building up this digital first clinic and happy to share my experiences about that so far. Sounds like you always had that entrepreneurial inclination. You actually took action. You took action in the sense that you actually tried to cultivate 
that interest by doing these internships and just exposing yourself to that field. And mm. sounds like that kind of laid the foundation for your current venture, ExciteMD. You currently launched a pilot program on that. Tell us your experience in regards to actually gathering the resources needed to open a clinic. Have you worked through the legal framework? What are some of the insights that you learned that you can share with the audience? They don't really teach us just how to actually go about like opening up a medical practice. Like obviously they teach you the fundamentals of how to evaluate and treat a patient, but starting a medical practice can feel... So I guess what I would say is a few things. One is the, I'll go into kind of like some of the play-by-play nitty-gritty in a little bit. But one thing that I would just say, just from a general mindset perspective, is just to take the idea of like, okay, how do you eat a whale just one bite at a time? Break problems down into small approachable problems. Think about where you want to go, but also just kind of like rather than trying to get uh, overwhelmed by the mountain of launching a clinic, just be like, okay, what do I need? What's the next thing I need to figure out? So in terms of the legal components, that's going to vary state by state. In the show notes, I'd be happy to link to this. I created a doc that has every state's legal requirements for opening up a medical clinic in terms of whether or not like has to be physician owned, like whether just what if there's certain entities that you have to have in order to operate as a medical clinic in that state. So for example, in our state, the state of New York, at the time of reporting, you have to open up something called a PLLC. So that's something that's like, which stands for a professional limited liability company. You can't just open an LLC. So that's a nuance. So putting, but let me back up and put together a systematic approach. So, so I would say you got to get your legal right. That takes a huge amount of time. So if I was just starting out, I would look into what are your state's regulations on opening a medical clinic? What is your state's regulations on telemedicine? And also in that, and there's a few different pieces. One is just generally what the telemedicine regulations are, as well as if you're going to be prescribing any controlled substances, at times there's specific regulations for telemedicine kind of around controlled substances. And, and a lot of times the legal piece, it can, uh, some states it's very straightforward and it's just a matter of weeks, but for example, in New York, it can really take months and months to get your legal entity in place for a clinic. So I would start there because typically that piece tends to be one of the longer pieces Hmm. and there's not really shortcuts for it. How long did that take you? I'm operating as a solo provider and we have our PLLC app in, I'll let you when it's done. That's it. All right. So submitted. Okay. And then also I would see what in the business world is called what your uh, value proposition is, but I'm just kind of bringing it back to medicine. Where do you want to fit? Do you just want to do primary care? Is there a specific challenge that you want to try and solve? I would definitely work out that at the beginning stages. And then I would just put a checklist together and be like, okay, what are the things like because like, I feel like a lot of times that one of the reasons that opening a clinic seems so daunting is it's just kind of like this big nebulous task. Whereas if you actually kind of take a checklist approach and be like, okay, these are the tasks need to be accomplished. It becomes more manageable. You're just like, okay, 
I can do this at this time frame. then I'll move on to this part of the checklist, then I'll go on to the next part. Other things to consider is this will be a process that it's not going to be something that you can just start over a weekend. Be prepared to do just being virtual first, people hear virtual first, and they hear telemedicine, and they tend to conflate the actual practice of telemedicine with their patient acquisition strategy. You can leverage telemedicine in a lot of cases in expanding the amount of care you give. Be prepared to actually do good, good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground networking and building partnerships for the patient acquisition side. So those are some things to consider. I know that was kind of a random mishmash of advice. So I'm happy to dig no, that's, into that's it. No, that's fantastic. I think the recurring thing seems to be eating veil one bite at a time or coming up with a checklist. Just a number of steps that you have to take systematically. You want to make sure you get the legal right. So you did a fantastic job explaining the starting steps. Uh, what do you think the role of having a mentor would be in this process where this is a completely uncharted territory that you don't learn in residency? So what do you think about that? Like having a mentor who's done this, hiring them as a coach, and perhaps just taking their guidance on? Yeah, I would say that there's two things. Number one is absolutely reach out. One of the things that gets underutilized is the power of, uh, if you see people like on LinkedIn, like, I'm posting about my journey. There's tons of other people that doctors that are kind of being what digital health, what I would call digital health aware, and at least talking about digital health. I would reach out. You can go on LinkedIn, you can send them direct messages and you'll see who's willing to give you feedback and advice. There's also various provider first Facebook groups that you can go to that can also give you great advice for starting off. So I absolutely think there's a role for that. If you wanted to hire someone and you're sure of their accreditations and that they actually know what they're talking about, I'm not above hiring for expertise. But I also think you can get a lot just on the kindness of strangers and just re reaching out to people on LinkedIn and social media networks, as well as using your own alumni network from your medical school. Yeah, definitely. I think social media marketing was one of those useful skills where you have to market yourself through these brands and also in the process, end up getting valuable insights from people who've done it. Tell us some, a little bit about some of the setbacks that you perhaps experienced right, when you're starting off. And how did you overcome them? I think that is crucial for our listeners, most of whom are residents or early career physicians or looking to venture out. I would say that there's a lot of platforms that are kind of like telehealth centric that kind of pro do a good job promising you the world in terms of patient flow. They're, they do deliver some patient flow, but temper expectations and be prepared to put in the work for developing the appropriate networks. Don't expect just because you start a website that you're going to get 100 patients your first day. So that's less of a setback and more of a mindset thing. I, so I would say just be prepared for that, real, that reality that this is going to be a campaign. In terms of setback, a lot of it happened on the legal end. For example, even when trying to get approved for Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements as an individual provider and putting those applications in. A lot of the times you would just like 
you, you, in a way, I felt very old school. I'd be going to FedEx Kinkos and creating copies of things and documents to send out. Then I would send it out and the Medicaid website would say something different than a checklist that I was supposed to look at prior to sending it in. Um, and so you would do your best, you would send it all in and then you'd get it back. And a month later saying, oh, you forgot to sign one aspect of your oh. entire application. And then you get back to the back of the line and that adds like another month to your application. Oh, so, I be, so I would say that that was probably on the setback side. I haven't suffered any game-changing, debilitating setbacks, but I think on the legal end, that both the ambiguity and the the challenges around that are okay. probably the setback areas. Gotcha. And I think one key word that you used is mindset. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is about mindset and having mindset to go through all of these hurdles to get to your entrepreneurial goal is a journey, not the destination. That's another area that I 100% echo what you say about the mindset. I want to make this as practical as I can for people. So I just want to put as many nuggets out there as I can. So I would just say getting the process on get like assuming that you want to accept payer reimbursement it could be useful just to define that really quick. In residency, you create your EMR note and it goes off into a system and you never have to worry about billing. If you want to start a clinic and accept insurance, you have to, that's what's called the insurance carriers are what's called payers. In order to do that, you have to apply to be a network. You can either apply as an individual provider or as a corporate entity. Each one has their own requirements. And so there's there's these applications that uh, that are online. You go and fill out. You typically things have to be signed. In some cases, things have to be notarized. So that and each payer typically requires their own contract uh, to be formed to to be a part of their network. I would start that in the legal aspect early. The telehealth platforms don't necessarily drive always drive a ton of patient flow. I actually think that's not a bad place to start by signing up with some of those sites, just to kind of get a little bit of the flavor of what it's like to yeah. so, you know, so do something a little bit more entrepreneurial, do something kind of like have a version of having your own practice sort of. So I, so that's another area to start. Keep going with questions. I'll think of nuggets as they come. Those are great tips. What you're sharing is, is fantastic, man. So we got some valuable insights on opening a clinic. In addition to this, you're also involved with serving on the advisory board of a venture capital firm. Tell us a little bit more about that and how you got into it. And for audiences who may not have any experience in digital health, what advisor tips do you have? And I'm going to insert that in now before I forget, but I promise I'll talk about just my... Okay. So one thing that I do want people that are interested in starting a clinic to get familiar with remote patient monitoring and chronic care management and their therapeutic remote monitoring, those three branches. So let me define each of those. So remote patient monitoring, that's probably what most people have heard of. It's using technology to monitor physiological parameters of a patient, vital signs in a remote setting. And so it's typically ambulatory. It's either involves some type of contact or non-contact sensor 
for insights. In addition to that, there is actually remote therapeutic monitoring that has to be like objective data. That's your physiological parameters. But remote therapeutic monitoring is actually a little bit more interesting as well in that that actually allows for patient-generated data. So for example, things like a pain score, the, that, yeah. uh, that would actually count towards your remote therapeutic monitoring. Now, remote patient monitoring, that has the, that's very broadly applied. There's literally a whole host, literally any medical condition you can think of that can realistically have a remote patient monitoring component. What can be monitored is very narrow. With remote therapeutic monitoring, that's actually very specific towards respiratory and musculoskeletal diseases. And then chronic care management that is billing for monitoring. Traditionally, it's two or more medical conditions that are chronic medical conditions. And that's its whole other separate set of billing codes. And so one of the reasons that I like sharing about these codes is that I feel like for the first time using these codes, we have the tools to provide like really good and get compensated for really good preventative medicine. Right. And go in especially and the billing tools to meet patients where they are, which is in their home. I just kind of want to make a plug for folks to look into that. I'm not going to bore people by going through each different CPT code, the official name for billing code. You can, if it's a Google search away, there's tons of resources that has the, the lists of all the various CPT codes for RPM, remote therapeutic monitoring, CCM. But I would encourage people to, especially if you're opening a clinic for the first time, get more familiar on the billing of those spaces. So that's awesome though. That? Thanks for clarifying that. I definitely think that there is going to be an increase surge in the uses of RPM, um, specifically at a primary care clinic level. So that's great that you shared that with us. Yeah. I read something ridiculous, like, especially for like CCM billing, only 4% of patients that are eligible to be enrolled in CCM programs. These are things that providers are already doing for their patients. Providers are offering services to their patients that would be eligible for CCM billing. And there's only a 4% utilization of that, what could be billed to what's actually being billed. Oh, so okay. just really, really kind of want to spread the word there I, in that space. So no more ideas, no more detours. My venture capital medical advisory board. So that's actually something that's relatively new. I So one of the things is that just because I'm a big medical technophile and I love startups and the startup community, like I said before, from very early on in my medical career, I knew this was a space I was interested in. But I'm not just interested in, in like investing in you know, just uh, startups. Like I'm actually interested in like, okay, how, how can we actually take something and really create something new in the med tech space or some type of therapeutic? What does that process look like? Right. And even though I had startup experience, I didn't necessarily have a lot of medical technology or digital health or things on the therapeutics end, a university to being part of a startup to yeah. being a solution that's offered to patients. I was looking for, do I want on the vesting end? I don't really get to be involved in the startup process, but I can participate in a lot of different ventures. But on the startup end, I get to have my uh, thumb on the scale in terms of launching and creating something new. But typically 
that can be a very long-term and all-consuming endeavor. If you have a startup, you have to be willing to be the CEO and the main person for that being your yeah, full-time. Yeah, wear multiple hats. I was looking for what is now commonly called today, what's called a venture studio. And that's the now in vogue terminology. Although up until recently, I don't really think that was a term. And so it's basically a term for a firm that both ideates and funds initial startup. So it's as opposed to just kind of like investing in star and founders that have already founded a company, they're actually taking an idea, an idea, ideating it and putting money behind it and recruiting the initial team, as opposed to you're necessarily being the core team themselves, they're recruiting the team to kind of essentially be to, to pick up the ball and run with it, so to speak. So, and the reason that that appealed to me is that, okay, if you can do that in the medical space, that's going to really allow you to like leverage your efforts a lot. I was looking for folks that did, did this or something like this and actually came around what's called Vic, which is a venture studio and the, the folks that I'm essentially a medical advisor for. And basically it is, it's the Vic Tech was actually their longer form name and was that and they do exactly kind of what I had in mind. They actually they they work with the basically their model is they work with what's called tech transfer offices of universities. Right. So for I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but for when you have you're a university, you have PhDs that do all this research that could potentially have clinical applications. Typically the PhDs aren't directly forming companies off of the research they do. Sometimes they do. There are some PhDs that are very entrepreneurial, but oftentimes they have agreements with universities that are called tech transfer offices. It's the job of these tech transfer offices to take the research that the university has done and then work with corporate partners to commercialize that IP and find the initial investment for that IP. So what Vika does is they actually go in and find the IP with these various tech transfer offices, and then they license it, form the initial team around it. Sometimes the initial CEO will be part of the Vic core team, but oftentimes they'll be recruiting other founders to fill in that role as well. And then, yeah, so the that's basically the their model. They'll kind of like work with tech transfer offices take the IEO, like license IP, create yeah. a founder team around it and launch it to solve some problem in, or challenge in healthcare. I mean, it really was not necessarily a dramatic story to say how I got involved with these guys. I just found them through the internet, looked at what they were doing, was like, oh, that seems actually really interesting and reached out to them. Initially, I was interested in more hands-on fellowship with them. But after talking with the founder, the medical advisory position was much and with all the other responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah that exactly. But that's a great concept. And I think that's definitely something that I think that our audience might benefit from, especially because it seems like it's a good way to jumpstart into this field, into this venture world. Josh, this has been an amazing talking to you as we're wrapping up the interview. What is one piece of advice you have? For someone who just finished residency, is pretty happy with clinical medicine, but also wants to venture out. And perhaps they're at a stage where they don't know what that entails because it could be crypto, it could be stocks, it could be real estate, venture capital, startups. 
you name it. So what's one piece of advice you have for them? I would say, don't be afraid to experiment. I tend to be a very cerebral person. And so I like to kind of think about things inside a box and try to uncover the answer, just utilizing what's between my two ears. But in reality, just get a concept of what something will be like. You can have a concept of what will work. I would just say, get out there, experiment. Even though some of these telehealth platforms aren't necessarily going to be the panacea for driving patient flow, they're a good starting place to see if this is something realistically that you're interested in. Don't forget to experiment, eat well, one bite at a time. It's been a great uh, pleasure talking to you. Uh, we're excited for ExciteMD to grow. All right. And, and, uh, I see what you did there. Huh? I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're hoping to have you back where you can share your journey and your progress with it. When people reach out to me, you know, I've had a few folks based off the posts I've been making reach out to me. And if there's any small part I can play in helping people start their journey, uh, I'm happy to do so. So Joshua Engel on LinkedIn, don't be a stranger. Feel free to reach out if there's anything I can do to help. Absolutely, my friend. All right. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.